You're listening to a very special holiday edition of Historically Speaking, brought to you by Kappa Kappa Gamma. And we're together again, just like a good old-fashioned holiday get-together, except we're still in the middle of a pandemic, so regardless, our holidays won't be quite so old-fashioned. Well, except for that time students had to quarantine on campus over the winter holidays because of the influenza epidemic, or students who went to school far from home and taking a train or carriage to get back from the holidays just wasn't an option. Or even students today who may have been on a travel abroad program overseas pursuing their education and planning to go home for several weeks of their winter break have found that it isn't feasible this year. Okay, so we might be a little more old-fashioned than I first realized. So, Kylie, you've called us together to talk about how our founders would have celebrated the winter holidays. And it's exciting to have Dr. Oz with us again today. Hi, you two. I'm excited to be back. Okay, so we're dusting off the December 2008 issue of Historically Speaking that Kay wrote when she was fraternity history chair. And it opened with the question, how might our founders have celebrated Christmas? Our membership is vast and wide, so we, of course, would never presume that any of our members celebrate a particular holiday or any holiday at all. But we do know that our founders grew up in mostly Protestant households. And don't forget, Monmouth College was founded by Presbyterian ministers. That's right. So Christmas was a given for our founders. And we have the Victorians, those people who lived during Queen Victoria's reign in England from 1837 until her death in 1901, to thank for the many festivities and customs that we still recognize today. No doubt, many of those customs were enjoyed by our founders. And this is interesting. Christmas was declared a United States federal holiday in 1870 and signed into law by President Ulysses S. Grant. So I guess it's a happy sesquicentennial to Christmas as a federal holiday as well. The North American Christmas inherited its major characteristics from England during the colonial period. Christmas was a family celebration with its primary focus on children and the birth of the baby Jesus. A Victorian Christmas for families in the middle and upper class entailed the exchange of gifts between parents and children, attendance together at church services, a multi-course family dinner, and visits with friends, relatives, and other families. Gift giving and charity to the poor were essential parts of that holiday. The Victorians transformed the folk figures of Father Christmas and Santa Claus into symbols of holiday generosity, and they greatly popularized Germany's traditional Christmas tree. If gifts were exchanged, they were handmade, such as pomanders made of clove-studded oranges, which were hung on the tree or in armoires. Christmas stockings first became popular around 1870 as well. They often were filled with a few fruits and nuts. 
I was interested to read that in North America until this time, Christmas trees were considered a quaint foreign custom. North America was so geographically large that it tended to have pockets of customs relating to the immigrants who had settled in a particular area. It really wasn't until telegraph communications became commonplace in the 1800s that such customs began to spread. Thus, references to decorated trees in North America before the middle of the 19th century are pretty rare. German settlers had brought the custom to America, but when an illustration of Queen Victoria and her family admiring their festooned tree appeared in Godey's Ladies Book in 1850, Christmas trees became even more popular in North America than in England. By 1870, the Christmas tree had become fashionable. But keep in mind, this is very different than the decorated trees we see today. Decorations included gingerbread men, marzipan, or hard candies, cookies, fruit, cotton batting Santas, paper fans, tin soldiers, whistles, wind-up toys, pine cones, dried fruits, nuts, berries, and trinkets of all kinds. Decorations were of a homemade variety. Young ladies spent hours at Christmas crafts, quilting snowflakes and stars, sewing little pouches for secret gifts, and placing sugared almonds in paper baskets. Small beaded decorations in silver tinsel came from Germany, together with beautiful angels, to sit at the top of the tree. Candles often were placed into wooden hoops for safety. Children frequently helped to make the tree decorations. They would string garlands of popcorn or cranberries and make chains of paper flowers. Some families set up a nativity or outdoor scene under the tree, using moss for grass and mirrors for ponds. Once Thanksgiving was over, women began their Christmas baking, much of it reflecting the ethnic traditions of the family. Christmas menus reflect traditional foods of the celebrant's original culture. In all times and places, the foods served for this holiday and the ingredients used reflect the very best possible items available to the family. Pioneer American Christmas menus varied greatly. Christmas menus depended on one's location. Cities offered more food choices than rural communities. Economics, the wealthier the family, the better grade of food they could afford, such as white flour instead of coarse brown flour, and heritage, people cooked what they had known growing up. The traditional Christmas dinner was a roast goose, or we have today turkey, potatoes with vegetables and sauces, cranberry sauce, pumpkin or mince pies, fruitcakes, plum puddings with brandy sauce, pastry cases filled with a mixture of chopped dried fruit, General popular Christmas foodstuffs of the period included roast beef, turkey, ham, potatoes, pickles, fine white bread, fruitcakes, cookies, and pies. Oysters were treasured. Tinned oysters were available in some major cities but were expensive. And some families might have been able to afford them, others not. Chocolate, tea, and coffee were imported and not always available. And they weren't just decorating their trees. There might have been garlands strung from the mantle, framing the, a glowing fire of crackling pine cones, and the family Bible prominently displayed on a table. 
the scents of fir, pine, hemlock, sweet spices of cinnamon, cranberry, and apple filled the air. Windows were frosted, and the walls faintly shuddered with the howl of a snow-laden winds outside. <laughs> you explained that just as Dickens would have written it. And speaking of Dickens, as we mentioned in our Halloween episode, Christmas and other traditional winter holidays through the centuries were also a time of superstition and reflection on one's past as the dark nights stretched on and the end of the year was nearing. Today, it seems a bit odd to have a beloved Christmas tale be written with such a dramatic and haunted flair. The stage and screen versions of A Christmas Carol still creep me out, but to the Victorians, it wasn't all that surprising. So now, Mary, we've spent all this time talking about Victorian Christmas traditions in general and have hardly let you get a word in edgewise. I bet you have some pretty interesting details about how our founders would have celebrated Christmas. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, that was the original question, wasn't it? As it happens, I do have some things to share about how the Stuarts would have celebrated Christmas through the generations. We have so few of the Stuarts' possessions, which makes me treasure the, the possessions that we do have on display at the museum. For example, we have a collar and cuffs boxes on display in the library. They represent a bygone age of men's fashion. Collared shirts as we recognize them have only been around since the 1920s. Prior to the interwar period, men wore shirts with detachable collars and cuffs. And of course, they had to have some place to store these stiff celluloid pieces. The boxes at the museum were a Christmas present for Minnie Stewart, either to her father or to her brother, William. A pair of William's cuffs are in the cuffs box today, but he may have inherited these boxes from his father. They appear to have been covered in leather with a textured pattern of squares on the outside. The interiors are lined with a red fabric. Minnie inscribed the lids with a message presented by Minnie Stuart Nelson, Christmas, 1887. These boxes are not as ornate as some of I have seen online, which were porcelain or glass. We do know that the Stuarts like to give books as Christmas presents. Overall, they tended to be the popular works of the day, titles that we would now consider classics. We have two examples of children's literature that belong to Lucretia and Isabel Stuart, Minnie's nieces. Lucretia, or Kitty as she was known in the family, and Belle were fairly close in age, but about three years apart. The first book I'd like to talk about is called Bedtime Stories. It was a gift from the girl's cousin, Eleanor Hammock. Eleanor was the daughter of Isabel Stewart Hammock, Minnie's older sister. The Hammocks lived in California. Nellie's father, Daniel, was the dean of the Los Angeles College of Law and later served as United States Court Commissioner. The book Bedtime Stories was illustrated by John Gilbert, Harrison Weir, and Alfred Thomas Elwes, and published by Thomas Nelson and Sons. I'm not entirely sure of the date of publication. I checked a catalog record from the University of Florida's Baldwin Library of Historical Children's Literature, which estimates 1888. However, the inscription in the museum's copy is 1882 or 1883. The earlier year makes more sense because Lucretia and Belle would have been about eight and five years old, respectively. This book is geared towards a younger audience. The stories are one page each with illustrations on the opposite page. 
They're simple stories that contain a moral, have patience, show gratitude, be obedient, etc. In a few years, the girls were ready for young folk stories of American history and home life. This is a collection of stories about America's founding, which emphasize colonial history and the early republic. There is also a story which mentions the settling of Indiana. Young Folk Stories was published in 1886. This copy was a gift from Lucretia and Bell's grandparents, Judge James and Isabel Stewart. As a side note, this book cost around 75 cents in 1886, which would be about $20 today. These books were not inexpensive, and it makes sense that Lucretia and Isabel would be expected to share. That the Stuarts kept abreast of popular works is evident by this next Christmas present. In 1890, Lucretia and Isabel received a copy of Ben-Hur from their friend Tilly. I haven't been able to ascertain Tilly's identity. Um, there were a number of Tilly's mentioned in the newspaper's social pages um, around that time, and it's also possible that Tilly might have been Matilda, the Stuart servant who we know was living at the residence in 1880, although I don't know that she would have referred to herself as the girl's friend. Anyway, Ben-Hur was an extremely popular novel by Lou Wallace, first published in 1880. I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that Lou Wallace was a Hoosier. He was born in Brookville, Indiana in 1827. His father, David, was the sixth governor of Indiana. Lou fought in the Civil War and rose to the rank of commander of the Eighth Army Corps. President Hayes appointed him governor of the New Mexico Territory, and he also served as the minister to Turkey. As I was gathering books for this episode, I came across a copy of Little Lord Fauntleroy by Frances Hodgson Burnett, who's better known for her books, The Secret Garden and A Little Princess. This book is significant for a couple of reasons. First, this copy belonged to James H. Stewart, William Stewart's son. Jimmy died at the age of 15, and consequently, we know little about him. The other reason this book is so special is that his aunt, Ada Mariner, gave it to him. Ada was a truly fascinating, enigmatic individual, and I've talked about her at length on Voyage of Discovery. Until I found this book, I didn't have anything with her signature other than a photocopy of a letter. We don't have any photos, or I should say we don't have any known photos of Ada, so finding this inscription is especially exciting. It's interesting that Ada inscribed this book to Jimmy only, and that may be because Lucretia and Isabel were quite a bit older than their brother and were by this time reading more mature novels. Jimmy was also the only son and youngest child, so he may have been a little bit spoiled. The types of books people read can reveal a lot about their personalities and tastes. Minnie's mother Isabel seems to have been a devout Christian, for instance. In 1891, Minnie and her husband, Lucius, gave Isabel a copy of Addresses by Henry Drummond. Drummond was a Scottish evangelist, biologist, and lecturer. The book itself is beautiful, with silver-embossed scroll work on the cover. Minnie's brother was also well-read. William appears to have been a fan of James Fenimore Cooper, but he also read nonfiction. In 1921, his sister, Isabel, gave him the biography of Queen Victoria by Lytton Strachey. Strachey was a British essayist and critic and part of the Bloomsbury Group, which included Virginia Woolf and Vanessa and Clive Bell. This biography was Strachey's latest work, but he is perhaps best known for his 1918 book, Eminent Victorians. And that is all I have on the Stuart's Christmas <laughs> presents.
Mary, I was wondering about the first books that were given to the to the children. Would they have had uh, colored pictures in them that maybe had been hand colored, or were they just black and white? These were all black and white. Okay, so just for the genealogy, the cuffs were given by Minnie to her brother. It's not. It's not clear. Oh, okay. Who she gave them to. It's just that. William, one of William's cuffs is in the box. So it, was, it could have been his Christmas present or he may just have inherited it when his father passed away. Oh, so Minnie may have given it to her father. Yeah. Okay. See, yeah, we, don't, we don't know. Our listeners will remember all of the genealogy. So. <laughs> um, and so then the books were given, those would have been Minnie's nieces and nephew, correct? Yes. And then I did have a question. The bedtime stories was illustrated by a weir. Is that any relation to the weir family line that came from the Stewart family? Um, it's anything is possible. I haven't <laughs> at this point. I haven't. I haven't traced the the weir family. Although I probably should, that should be on my list of projects. No, no big famous illustrators yet that we've found. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as it was with the Victorians, this time of the year was filled with benevolence and enjoyed by campus founders. Thank you for bringing us together, Kylie. And Mary, that was so interesting to hear about the gifts that were given in the family. In this modern holiday season, that feels even more old-fashioned than usual. You're welcome. And thank you, Dr. Oz, as always, for bringing some pretty great research to the table. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. All right, listeners, you know the deal. If you have a question you'd like us to research and answer, you can send those to archives at kkg.org. Wherever you are and whatever you celebrate, we hope that you are healthy and happy. Bye. Bye. We hope you all enjoy your holidays this year. You've been listening to a special holiday episode of Historically Speaking, brought to you by Kappa Kappa Gamma, with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. A special thank you to our guest, Dr. Mary Osborne, from Alpha Deuteron Chapter and Director of the Stewart House Museum. Our headquarters is in Columbus, Ohio. Our house museum is in Monmouth, Illinois. You can find us online at kappa.org, or you can peruse our digital archives at kappa.historyit.com. Research is done by former fraternity president and former fraternity historian Kay Smith-Larson from Beta Pi Chapter at the University of Washington. And production is done by me, Kylie Smith, from Omicron Deuteron Chapter at Simpson College and the archivist and museum director for Kappa Kappa Gamma. Thank you.